Welcome to episode two of the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast, a series that aims to help you, the armed forces community, access the plethora of NHS services available. Through these episodes, we will look at different aspects of healthcare, from leaving service to finding a GP, taking care of mental and physical health, and provision for forces families. In today's episode, we're looking at medical provision within the military and negotiating leaving service in terms of your ongoing care. For this, I'm joined by Dr Jonathan Leach, NHS England Medical Director for Armed Forces and Veterans Health, Paul Finlay, Director of CSR for Epic Risk Management, and Surgeon Commander Kate King, a Royal Navy GP. We like to begin each podcast with the same question to each person. Why did you get involved in the AFPPV and why are you here? And Kate, I'm going to start with you, please. Hello, Alice. Um, So I'm Surgeon Commander Kate King. I'm a serving military GP. I'm in the Navy. I have been for over 20 years now. Um, And over that time, I have seen countless patients um, at all stages of their service um, and in all stages of their health as well. Um, and I wanted to get involved um, a little bit more balancing how the armed forces worked with the NHS, uh, because there's been some real big divisions in there in the past. We're working, it's becoming a lot closer, and working a lot um better together now um, and so I got involved with the NHS Armed Forces um, Clinical Reference Group and met Nikki uh, and Nikki asked me to and that's Nikki Murdoch uh, that's Nikki chair. Murdoch yes um, and she asked me to come and uh, talk to you today about uh, transition and all things military health and it's great to have you here. Now, Jonathan, over to you. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Alice. So I'm a, also a GP general practitioner. So I served in the army 25 years, uh, right around the world, of which 17 were overseas. And then since I left the army, I've been a, an NHS general practitioner uh, here in Worcestershire. But one of my particular roles is as the medical director for NHS England for military and veterans health. So really heavily involved with trying to improve uh, NHS services for the military community generally. So that is for serving personnel, their families, um, and also for veterans. So it's a really, really important part of my work. But it's also something I'm very passionate about, particularly given my own particular background of operational tours in Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia, Iraq. Um, So it's very close to my heart in trying to do what we can do to ins- improve the health services for the whole military community. Fantastic. And finally, Paul. Hi, Alice. Um, yes, yeah, so slightly different from, from Kate and Jonathan. I'm not a, a doctor or, or anything medically related. Um, but yes, yeah, so I served in the military for, for a number of years and, and then was medically discharged in 2012. And I suppose when I first got out, I was quite passionate about making sure that, that veterans and those still serving had a voice. Um, and I worked uh, for a number of years for a military charity where I was able to advocate on behalf of people. And then I remember um, when the PPV was first formed and its first original guys, that's when, when Nicky Murdoch and myself um, crossed paths. And, and then I was invited to be part of, to be part of this, um, this, this fantastic group. And I've been, I've been involved ever since in a number of different roles. And, and it's, um, yeah, I've just seen the evolution and kind of where we've where we've been and where we've we've came from and 
and the kind of challenges and the the, the kind of the, the positive impact that we've had since then. And we're going to ask you about that your lived experience as we as we go through the podcast. Um, and so, Kate, I'm going to come to you first of all. As a military GP, can you explain a little how healthcare works while serving? So, our healthcare within the military covers a range of people. So, people who were serving in the UK, and that can be our sort of full time regulars, that can be our reservists. Um, who are on a sort of full commitment and getting all of their general practice from the military. Um, and then we've got so, some um, med centres, some services will cover families as well. And then we've got the, the healthcare when you're on deployment. General practice, your primary healthcare, when you are deployed, when you are uh, overseas, is on operations, on exercises, that virtually all comes from within the military and we will have a range of medical um, support personnel over overseas to support you, the, the individual and that can be very much everything from a hospital facility with which is dealing with um, major trauma day in day out as we had on the big operations in Afghanistan and Iraq um, right the way down to a single medic or um, a patrol medic there with a medical Bergen who's with a very small team um, deployed a lot of a few fair few miles from their backup and then all the way back there is an increasing level of care so you'll get and you'll have the, the GPS in um, doing remote um, working and then they will have a kind of a backup back to the UK. Um, and of course, which service you're in depends on who you've got and where you go. So um, the Navy tends to take their doctors and their medics with them on their on our great big uh, grey floaty things. Whereas the Army sometimes will have, as I say, a, a, just a single medic, but all the way back up to the um, to the big to the big hospitals. When we're doing a big deployment. Um, it becomes a tri-service medical effort generally nowadays. We've, we don't generally work stovepiped into our, into our services. When we start thinking about sort of the firm base in the UK, Defence Primary Healthcare, they're the main provider um, of pretty much all of, the, all of the healthcare. And that is run as the interface there is the medical centres, the, the ones that people are used to just on their base, there'll be a, a medical centre. And that's effectively akin to an NHS GP surgery. Um, the difference between us and the NHS GP surgery is that we're an occupationally focused primary health care, which means we're not just worried about your health and dealing with your health, but we're also focused on how that health has uh, impacts on your ability to do your job and how your job impacts on your health so trying to balance those things out as well we have general practice facilities that should be offering pretty much everything that the NHS do and then depending on your location and your service depends on whether we offer and can support families as well so we'll often have families and dependents registered um, some of the larger RAF medical centres and some of, and um, the big centres of gravity for the army also offer um, support for families and dependents. The Navy medical centres don't. Um, so 
the, what, there's multiple reasons for that, but I think one of those is the fact that actually the Navy tends to not move too much. We, we have three centres of gravity in the UK, Plymouth, Portsmouth and, and Fas Lane, and families tend to locate themselves there. So they've, they're fully more integrated into the local communities and the local NHS services. To me, as a, a as a I suppose civilian, that sounds quite a complex setup. So, I suppose my next question will be: Are there trickier aspects to this? There are some tricky aspects. There are some things that we're absolutely wonderful at doing, and the to be honest, the service that we provide in things like mental health and musculoskeletal stuff, so those injuries and um, the, all the the joint aches and um, aches and sprains all of that the physiotherapy is probably much better than you'll get in, in an equivalent NHS practice but what we do struggle with sometimes is those where we haven't those healthcare issues where we haven't got a great experience with it and we're not seeing lots and lots so a little bit thinking of um not so much contraception but menopause healthcare, we've got, I think, about 600 women um, over the ages of 45 in the military. So we're talking small numbers in different places. Um, but we're, the DPHC, Defence Primary Healthcare, are trying to move towards having those sort of more specialist areas as smaller areas covered on a regional basis, even if they can't manage it at every medical centre. How does military provision then fit into the context of the NHS? And how different it is when a serving person becomes a civilian. As Kate said, if you are a serving person, your GP service and actually also your dentistry is provided by the MOD, okay, primary care. So your general dental practitioner, your general medical practitioner, it may be under contract, but the responsibility lies with the MOD. That, that's very straightforward. The interface is often um, with the NHS, and, and this is particularly, you know, if you're back here in the United Kingdom, if you have a, a serving person who is pregnant, then the uh, midwifery services is provided by the local NHS. Similarly, if that person where I was serving, for example, on Salisbury Plain, if I needed uh, to attend the local Salisbury General Hospital. Um, it's us as the NHS that provide that, and actually it's us as the NHS that funds that. So, And there's clearly a, a, a very important relationship between the, the practices on Salisbury Plain and the hospital. But actually, in a way, it's exactly the same as civilian practices if they were in the local uh, environment. There's also something around, let's talk about, I know we can talk about families on another episode, but the mobility of the families, I think, is really important, particularly if somebody has long-term or complex problems. That move should be taken into account. And it's really important that you know, there are various things people can do in terms of actually you know, going to their GP, saying, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, a, a spouse or partner of somebody in the armed forces. And I, I need this. Could you? I need this treatment. Uh, this is the treatment that's been provided in my old area by this hospital. Could we see whether or not I could be rapidly taken on by your the, the whatever is the local service? So, if you like, the families bit is important, and that's not just for um, adults. That also applies for children as well. The children are, are really important, and then obviously there are veterans, and in the main. The veterans are the responsibility of the NHS. So when I left the services, I hung up my uniform, I handed in my ID card, 
and then I become a civilian. However, there are some specific services which are available to me as a veteran by virtue of my military service. But it's really important that you know this is made clear um, as people register with an NHS surgery so that they are aware of this. So actually being helpful as a patient can also uh, help in terms of actually getting to the right place where if somebody needs help and support and treatment, they go there the first time rather than bouncing around the system. All three elements and the interface with the NHS is really important because the unlike when I first joined the army when the military had its own hospitals, uh, the military don't have its own hospitals now. And so the vast majority of secondary care is provided by, or hospital care is provided by the NHS. So there are going to be some services that are delivered by the NHS and some that are delivered by um, Defence Medical Services. Do those two services talk to each other? Can there ever be any problems between that delivery of care? Yeah, so let's take, you know, somebody who is on Salisbury Plain, a current serving personnel or a family member who is registered at a military practice. So let's say they need to access uh, services at Salisbury General or something like that. So that's in exactly the same way as a civilian registered at maybe the nearby Amesbury practice. Let's say somebody's got a, I hope they don't, but let's say they've got a broken leg. Um, They're treated at Salisbury General. Then the letter which the hospital would uh, send to the NHS practice in Amesbury is identical to the one that would go to uh, the one in Tidworth. Similarly for GP out of hours and things like that. So whilst, yes, we, we continue to look at improving that in broad terms the information which would go to a defense practice is identical that would go to uh, an equivalent civilian practice given the circumstances of the patient and kate was there anything that you wanted to add to that so i absolutely agree with jonathan the vast majority of the communication is exactly the same where sometimes there can be problems is where we've got people transitioning in and out of defence primary health care. And that is either a serving person at the end of their service or actually more more, more frequently, the frequent moves in and out of defence uh, medical services can be the families. Um, and they can be registered with the military for for a couple of years then they're moved on posting and there may not be a military practice so sometimes the communication of general practice notes from from the military to civilian general practice that can be quite tricky um and there's a lot of work happening at the moment with with the NH, NHS England with NHS Digital um and the and Ministry of Defence trying to ease that pathway so that we can do a seamless transition of medical notes between civilian and military pathways um that will happen uh, in hopefully the next couple of years where it will simply be an electronic uh, send um of information between the two Paul, you have lived experience of this. So how was your time in service in terms of your medical care? Um, my my time in service was predominantly, um, I didn't have many visits to my military GP, to be honest. Um, I only had two kind of major, I suppose, major injuries before the one that ended up um, kind of with me being medically discharged. But both of those were football injuries. So one was in the UK where I broke my ankle and 
you know, that was, you know, literally on the day, straight away taken to, um, wasn't taken to the, the military uh, medical centre, was taken straight to the local hospital in Bath and was kind of put in cast and x-rayed and pinned and all of that stuff. Um, and then from a recovery point of view, that rehab was done through um, through, through the through the military. So I would be rehab. And then the second the second major incident was, again, a, a football injury when, when I was in Germany. And that was much more serious. I had to, get, I had to be taken in for surgery um, into, into a German hospital. And then again, it was a similar kind of rehab, but at no point, and this was at the point where all my rehab was done locally. So, you know, I was in a quite a big garrison in Germany and, and the, the the rehab facilities were fantastic. So I was able to kind of do my physio and, and get back to full fitness relatively quickly, probably much quicker than I would have done had I um, been in the, you know, been a civilian getting physio once a week. And I was getting physio you know, every day if, if need be. How about your time in Headley Court as well? Well, this was the interesting thing because it was after, so when I lost my leg in Afghanistan, you know, I came back and at the time it was Sally Oak um, Hospital, which is now uh, the, the, the Queen Elizabeth. And and um, and I'd never heard of Headley Court. It was n- not something I'd ever heard of during my service. You know, when I got both my injuries, I wasn't sent there for rehab. And then when I, when I kind of got out of intensive care and was told, oh, you're going to Headley Court and they explained what it was, um, but they didn't explain it very well. It was kind of, you know, it was quite daunting. It was like you're going to this military unit and they're going to rehab you. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm going to be marching on parade and doing all sorts of stuff, <laughs> missing a leg and not really knowing what was going on. And then when I got to Headley, it just was absolutely not like that. You know, it was a fantastic, um, unbelievable location with some some phenomenal, um, you know, medical staff that supported my recovery. But that that recovery I had at Headley Court was phenomenal, and, and you know the points that both Jonathan and Kate made. I, I felt there was a real strong relationship between the military care that I was getting and the civilians. So quite often, for some of the um, procedures and surgeries I needed, I went to civilian specialists because of the nature of my injuries, um, and I never felt in any way that there was that was a detriment. There was no detriment to me, you know, going from recovery at Headley Court to seeing my consultant. Um, up at Sally Oak to then going and seeing specialists at Hammersmith University or wherever, wherever I went. So, so for me, the transition was quite smooth between military and, and NHS care. Um, I was very fortunate. But I know that for some of the guys and, and girls that I, served, that I spent time at Headley Court with, that wasn't the case. They felt that they weren't properly looped in. And, and for some people, they were kind of pulled from pillar to post. They didn't really know who was in charge of their care. Um, and, and one of the, you know, the only criticism I have of Headley Court, and I've been very vocal about this, was a high turnover of staff, you know, especially within the mental health provision. People were not, see, you know, they were seeing somebody getting down a, going down a road of, of, of recovery and success and then bang, the next minute they're, they're posting somebody else came in. Um, you know, it's interesting, just Kate's point around the Navy being predominantly, you know, you know three kind of centres of, of gravity, as she mentioned. So, there would be that continuity, whereas in the army, I've posted every two or three years. I mean, I, I can't even, I've lost count of how many GPs I would have had. Um, so, you know, from a continuity point of view, and I, I know that that was a, a real issue at Headley Court where, where you know, from a prosthetist point of view to a physio right up to kind of, you know, the psychologists and clinicians that were supporting people, um, those who were really struggling, struggled with that turnover. Um, me personally, I was very fortunate that, like I said, my, my experience, I thought was on a whole, was, was very positive. So I'm coming to you now, Kate. What are the different ways in which people leave service? How do they differ? And what practical things do people need to know or do in order to pre- prepare for this? 
Okay, so a few questions in there. Um, the first was, how do people leave the military? Um, there's effectively three points at which you, three ways you leave. You can come to the end of your contract, you can put your notice in and leave on um, voluntary retirement grounds, um, or you can be discharged on medical grounds. Um the first two very similar from a medical perspective um you know it's going to happen um you've planned for it you hopefully have had the kind of career support the career transition work that the military can put in you've got time no to to sort of prepare yourselves family um those around you um, because it is a real big change of life, um, real change of life, even when it's planned for. Um, uh, the, we are all institutionalised, and I'm pretty sure about that. Even if you've only done a little bit of time, we 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 are very institutionalised. Um, and so with that transition from a medical perspective, um, Come, so it really sort of starts to, as you start the approaching the last few months of service. Um, for most people, it's very straightforward. They've not got any major ongoing health needs, at which point the main thrust of it is identifying a GP surgery. And when you have been, when you've come to the um, your TX date, your, your leaving date, you um, register, you approach them and register. Um, and is that even if... You know, even if there's nothing wrong with you, should you still yes. do that? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Because you don't know when you're going to need it. Okay, absolutely, you should always be registered with a GP. Um, identify how do you find a GP? A lot of people are going to home, going home where far partners, families are registered, so they'll possibly know which medical centre, which uh, surgery they're going to register with. But the NHS website is really useful. You can um, identify local GP practices. You can look at who's there. Look at um, then going onto the websites, and a lot of them will mention. Um, bits about the GPs themselves so you might find that the GP that's had previous military experience you might find somebody who's got a special interest in something that you um is re is relevant to your own healthcare um and I'm sure Jonathan will mention at some point the uh once mentioned the Royal College of GPs have got a veterans friendly accreditation um and I, Jonathan how many practices are now registered it's just over 1100 about 1150 so the point about this is that, you know, and I, I absolutely accept there'll be some patients who would not wish to see, you know, it's their choice. They would rather not see somebody with a military background or a military understanding. And I get that. Uh, but actually, there are a significant number who do. Um, and and that's for a range of things from physical injuries or physical problems to obviously mental health and, uh, uh, you know, any other concerns um, and also a little earlier, we were talking about families, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they would like, you know, if there was somebody, if it was a family member and their their partner is ex-military, sometimes they want to see somebody who's military. So people can choose. The key point there is identify a GP service. There are lots of veteran friendly practices out there. Go and find and pick one that's going to work for you. Now, Kate, you've covered off their two ways, the two ways to uh, people transitioning the end of contract and retirement. 
but what about medical discharge? Is that different? Yes and no. Ultimately, the process is the same. But I think those people who are going to be discharged on medical grounds, um, sometimes that can come with shorter notice. Um, they may, they'll know they're going to a medical board, but the actual ultimate decision um, sadly still comes as a surprise for some people. Um, some people, uh, and there's uh, there's some, the different services do it in different, do the, the process of um, getting to medical discharge in slightly different ways. Um, but the main thrust of it is if you're being medically discharged, you've got ongoing health care needs. And that's the bit that really is important to make sure that those bits are transitioned um so there are that's where it's very important that you make sure that you've got a copy of your medical notes as we said earlier we aren't yet at the point where we can seamlessly electronically send your medical notes from the military system to the civilian gp so i'm afraid physical copies of notes are still important um those <clears throat> to hand those over to you to the new GP any paperwork that's given to you from your military practice really key for you that to to get to your um to your new GP um and where you've got ongoing um hospital care um or where you've got ongoing um appointments that you need to be going to um especially if you're about to move area um, it's very, very important that you get the referrals to your new area and things. And that needs to mention the Armed Forces Covenant in there so that you don't lose place on waiting lists and things like that. Can you just explain to us how the Armed Forces Covenant applies to healthcare? So the Armed Forces Covenant is a promise, if you like, by the government and particularly regarding public services. And in broad terms, it is that uh, those in the military are not disadvantaged. And that's the key bit to, to note. So I discussed earlier about maybe a uh, somebody who is moving from on posting, so it's not their choice, from one area to another. So as they're posted, um, they shouldn't be just, and they're on maybe a waiting list or they are uh, being seen by a hospital consultant, they shouldn't be disadvantaged. So they shouldn't go back to the back of the waiting list and where the role of the GP here is to um, to be their advocate and actually to make the point um, that they need to be seen so you know this is somebody who's got these specific needs they've already been waiting so and so I would like you to to take that into account now it's it's not a promise that uh, people get additional care so let's use an example um, so we, we, we've got specific services set up in England for those with mental health difficulties or those sometimes who need a hearing aid. So those are there because of the specific circumstances which are attributable to service. So uh, they are there. They're very uh, op courage, for example, um, is now have many thousands of patients referred into it and the feedback's very positive. So that's, a, that's where it's much more important. But let's say somebody had gallstones or a cataract. Um, so I, I would struggle to think how being a member of the armed forces would give you a, a, an additional need in comparison to other members of society if, for example, you had gallstones or a cataract. So it, it's not a blanket, you go to the front of the queue. It is firstly that you're not disadvantaged, but then secondly, where 
you know, you, you've got specific needs, a requirement that where we can, that we would provide, if you like, more specific services to an individual. But the important thing is to say it's not a blanket. But overall, it's not a, it's, it's about not being disadvantaged rather than an advantage. Paul, over to you now. How was your experience of leaving? You said you were medically discharged. And how did leaving on a medical discharge affect you? For me personally, it was more the, um, it was probably the build-up, the medically discharge that had the most impact. Um, You know, there's a level of uncertainty at the time. So, you know, we're we're now talking the best part of 10 years ago. So it was, you know, I'm, I'm sure the process is very different now when I was going through, but there was still a time where there was an uncertainty within the military of whether with a, an amputation such as mine you could serve on. So there had been cases of of wounded vet, well, wounded service men and women with amputations who would, would carry on with service, would go into sedentary duties. There was even even a couple of cases where the guys deployed back to Afghanistan, um, which, uh, yeah, I think that was on a very rare occasion and then was quickly, was that door was very quickly closed I very quickly realised I didn't want to stay within the military. You know, I joined to do a specific job and the thought of sitting behind a desk, you know, at the age that I was at, you know, I got injured at, at 23. I, w- I wasn't ready to become that person. That's that, that's something I, you know, envisaged much later in my career. So, so for me, I was like, right, if I can't carry on in the job that I signed up to do, then I want to leave. You know, I was told quite quickly I'd probably never promote because I wouldn't be able to do the promotion courses needed because I'd be downgraded as a result of my injuries. So again, I was, you know, at that age looking, you know, as a corporal, quite young, 24, um, I was probably never going to promote beyond that when I went in front of the med board. Um, the, the colonel, I can't remember his name, who sat in front of me actually said, what do you want? And it was the first time anybody asked me throughout the whole process of when I was told I was going to go to med board, that somebody asked me that question. And it genuinely felt like a weight had been lifted when I was able to say, on all due respects, I just want to leave. You know, I can't serve on. I'm no, I don't see myself as a soldier anymore in terms of looking at me and the, the abilities that I've now got. I just want to go on and start a new life. Um, and he just said, okay. You know, they deliberated for about five minutes, called me back into the room and said, you know, you've got 12 months from today and you'll be medically discharged. And then that was, you know, as much as that's what I wanted, that there was a real sense of grief that came over me. Like, you know, that realisation that actually I've just lost my career without doing any forward planning of to, well, now what, what am I going to do? You know, when I look at the trade that I was in the army, most of my colleagues who'd got out prior to me had went into specific jobs, you know, working in telecoms and with BT open reach. And I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to climb up masts and, you know, dig trenches and do all of the stuff that perhaps um, I could have done had I not been injured. So that last 12 months was, for me, first and foremost, was getting as medically close to what I could be in terms of perfect to get out. Um, because, again, I'd heard all these horror stories about going on going out onto the NHS, which, you know, I've, I've debunked all of them, being perfectly honest. And I've you been, have debunked all yeah, of them, I've, so I've, all the horror I've, stories weren't true. Yeah, you know, I was told, you know, you're going to get the worst prosthetics, you're, not, you're, not, you're never going to be able to see a GP, you're never going to get a dentist appointment. You know, and this was all. This wasn't coming from any of the leadership positions. This was just coming from, you know, what it's like sitting around the, the TV on a Friday night in Headley Court, and the guys are all just kind of retelling horror stories that that were probably based on, you know, the odd, the odd person who may have had a a difference of opinion or, or a poor experience. But the main thing for me was the lack of um, 
the lack of education as to exactly what to expect. But I became aware quite quickly that I didn't have any education. Um, so the army put me through my you know careers transition partnership, which being perfectly honest, I thought was a waste of time. Um, it wasn't tailored towards someone who has been medically discharged. That was more a general, you know, anybody being, you know, that's decided to leave. Most people who have decided to leave have got a plan. I'd like to think, you know, I didn't. Um, so I ended up going down my own route and I said, well, what I need to do is I need to get some kind of work experience. I need to get something on my CV. Um, and I was fortunate enough to to, to go on a, a veterans programme that Barclays Bank um, had just set up. So I was one of the first um, soldiers or, or, or veterans to go on that. And, and then that build up to, you know, I was trans- transferred from Headley Court into a personal recovery centre in London. Um, and if I'm honest, that was where the, my relationship with the military really soured. They they seen me as quite um, quite proactive, a bit of a self-starter. So they just assumed that I was okay. And I had very, very little engagement. I got a phone call once every six weeks to check in. And then, you know, before I knew it, I, I was out of the military. There was no, I didn't get anybody. So the, the two weeks building up to my discharge, I had no contact with anybody. I didn't get any letters. You know, I got something from Vets UK about a month after to say that this is what your pension is going to be. And, you know, and there was no transition. Um, and again, you know, being, I suppose, being quite confident, I was, I'd already gone out and got myself my GP, got myself a dentist. But I thought to myself, there's a lot of, you know, the military is very good at wrapping um, its personnel up in cotton wool. You know, we do everything for them. You know, we give them their food, we give them their housing, we pay them their bills, we do this. If they get in debt, we help them. If they get addictions, we help them. We do so much for them. Um, there's got to be a more um, conducive way of transitioning and, and kind of, you know, that that support needs to continue beyond um, discharge, at least until somebody can go, do you know what, you can hand off and I say, you can pass that back. You know, I didn't get that, but I still felt, you know, I had enough about me to do it. But I, I know lots of veterans who, you know, in my previous job at Blesma, who didn't get any form of transition and then they fell between the cracks. You know, in 12, 18 months on, they weren't registered at a GP. You know, they were they were looking to illegal substances to, 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 to deal with the pain that they were in. You know, the amount of, you know, young men and women who unfortunately I found that were addicted to alcohol, drugs, you know, narcotics, gambling. It was a real, for me, it was a real issue. And most of those, the thing that was in common um, with those veterans that I spoke to was that there was no, there was no hand, there was no formal handover. It was just kind of, you're out, you're, you're out the military now, good luck. Thank you, Paul. I mean, that is so useful. And it was your decision to leave, you know, and even you found the process difficult. You said there was this real sense of grief, you know, incredibly emotional. And what am I going to do? And you're someone who's, you know, confident, you had a plan, you signed up to your dentist, you signed up to your GP, and even you struggled. And then you just said there about people who who are just aren't able to cope. We have service users, you know, we have veterans or people who've transitioned listening to this. So maybe they have felt they've been failed in some way, but what do we say to them? What can they do? I suppose, you know, what responsibility that can they take within this? Well, I think Jonathan mentioned utilise the network. The, you know, the, the military network is, is, is as strong as any other network that's out there. You only have to see the requests that go in on, on social media channels or LinkedIn. There's always someone willing to step up and help. And you can see that through the work that the PPV do, the work that Jonathan's been doing with kind of the accredited GPs. You know, this is not people's day job. I mean, I know sometimes it is, but for most of us, Nikki, myself, everybody involved in the PPV, we're volunteers. 
you know, we, we give up our time because it's an area that we're passionate about. And we're only a small handful of a much larger collective that would genuinely step up if someone was in need. So for me, the biggest piece of advice is don't be scared to, to kind of come forward and ask for help. And that's not, that. it's easy to say that. It's not necessarily easy to carry it out. Um, but I think the more that we normalise that not everybody is perfect and that, that, that everybody will need help at some point. You know, Jonathan, with his background and what he's done, and it still took him a year to transition or, or to settle, that's normal. You know, and I think we need to get away from this. What's wrong with me because it's taken me a year? Probably nothing. So, Jonathan, what about early service leavers who have an issue that manifests itself further down the line? Hmm. So that's a really important question. So <clears throat> our surgery in Bromsgrove, we, we get quite a lot of veterans who register with us. Some of them are individuals who've done a, a full service and they come with their own needs. And then we've actually got quite a few who are early service leavers. And maybe what they've done is that they've come from a, a difficult background maybe had a, a, a very short number of years, and then leave, um, not necessarily on medical grounds, but maybe because of uh, other difficulties in terms of, you know, behaviours in the services and things like this. So they're different. And often we find that, that the early service leavers actually often need quite a lot of help and support. Um, it may be that they're more likely to have difficulty getting a job because sometimes they may not have the skills, education uh, and background that maybe somebody who's left later. But also it may well be that, you know, they have significant mental health difficulties. And I can think of a few of my own patients at the moment where they're really having a really troubled time. So they are different. But one of the key messages is that delaying accessing help makes things worse. If you wait, what happens is the situation gets worse, the problems get ingrained, and the treatments become more difficult and not as effective. So the key bit here for both, but especially on mental health and very clearly on the early service leavers, is if there are problems, is seeking help early. So that, and it isn't just about the medical aspects, because I mentioned earlier about having a job. A job gives you an income. A job gives you a reason to get up in the morning. It gives you a sense of worth, you know, um, and it's really it's a really important part of being a member of society. So seeking help early is the most important thing. Kate, I'm going to come to you now. Do you have any ongoing advice for people after leaving? Always, of course. Good. Um, I've got a, there's a few there's a few points to pull out here. Um, Paul said earlier um, something which absolutely um, rang true with me. In the military, we wrap people up um, and we provide everything for them. That doesn't happen with your healthcare in Civvy Street. Um, you'll get an invitation for a screening for breast cancer for bowel cancer. But if you don't respond to it, nobody's going to chase you. Um, you have to, therefore, own your own healthcare. You have to take responsibility for it because your MO isn't going to do that for you anymore. Um, and that's the real key thing to remember. Um, 
that then we kind of think onto those behaviours that we do in the military that are not necessarily the healthy ones. Um, we drink more than our civilian counterparts and our veterans keep drinking more than the civilian uh, counterparts as well. We smoke more. We also have normalised gambling in, in many cases. And those vices, while they are there for reasons, multiple reasons through service, be, can become very, very toxic in service, but also out of service. So as, as Jonathan said, when you start thinking, oh, I'm drinking a bit too much, seek help early, ask for support, um, because there's a lot of support out there. Um, some of that support comes from the NHS, from your GP surgeries, from the specialist um, addiction support services and things. Um, and don't be afraid of the word addiction. It, it, it's, it's used as a, as, a, as a label, but don't be afraid of it. Um, if you want help reducing your drinking, whether you think you're addicted or not, get some help. Um, so some come from, as I say, NHS, some of them are from charities as well. And um, we, touched, we touched on, um, I think we've, we've mentioned a couple of, uh, through, the, through the podcast, but mostly um, there's an awful lot out there. There's a huge amount of different charity support available. Um, and there's one thing I was wanted to mention. We've said, we've, we've assumed actually so far that when people are leaving and transitioning, they're leaving into a job. And even when you're doing that, we're to get that income and that stability and things. Um, it takes 12 months to transition. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a group of people who aren't going to be able to move straight into a job. And when you recognise that that's you for medical reasons or for just because you haven't managed to find the right job for yourselves yet, um, touch base work with welfare early speak to them before as you're transitioning out um because benefits um do exist but that it's a really complicated world and that's one of those things that military gps are pretty pretty rubbish at on the whole um and I don't know how many civilian GPs are particularly au fait with all of the different um nuances of the the universal credit system and, and things like that so but that's where the charities can come in i know the absolutely Legion, for example, is. that they can help and help you navigate that yeah so when you're transitioning touch base with welfare they will help you identify which of the charities that are most appropriate which benefits can be be useful but if you've already left then look around so what the the main ones uh the main sort of generic ones um, are there and they're very able to help you out um, working out what you are able to claim for. That's fantastic. Thank you. Own your own healthcare, you've said there. No one's going to ch chase you if you don't. And if any of those issues that Kate has said, for example, drink, you know, that you resonate with that, perhaps you are drinking too much, seek help, ask for support, your GP could help you or their charities out there as well. And I'm assuming as well, families could go on behalf to start those conversations and Kate's nodding there. And if you want that welfare support and understanding about benefits, the charities are also there to help you navigate a complex system. Thank you. Yeah. Just what well, I've got a practical a practical tip as well, which makes Levery's life a little bit easier, um, is for those people who leave on, are on medication, um, 
allow the repeat medica- repeat prescription systems set up um, a lot of uh, G- civil and GP practices. You can order that through an app um, and it all becomes quite automated, but it does take time for it to happen. So the days of dropping into the med centre at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon and being able to leave 15 minutes later with your, your repeat prescription for the next six months that doesn't work in in civilian practice at all. Um, so you might want to, you'll need to, prep, this is where it comes taking responsibility. You'll need to plan a little bit more um, for repeat prescriptions, repeat medication. You are likely to get a month at a time rather than six months at a time for your medication. Um, and you will have to pay for it, almost certainly. Um, you, you will never have paid for a prescription previously, whereas now you're going to have to pay. And it's about £9.10, I think, per prescription at the moment, prescription charge. And that's per item on the prescription. So if you're on two inhalers or, or a, an antidepressant and, and something for your, for your stomach acid, then actually that adds up very quickly. And there are prescription prepayment certificates, which if you're on more than one item per month, they very, very much worth um, getting hold of. Just on that, just very quickly, Kate raised me. So in England, uh, the current prescription charges is £9.35. And for example, you can get a three month, um, and that's unlimited prescriptions for three months of £30, or there's a 12 months for 108. So there are uh, exemptions. But I, I absolutely agree with Kate. You know, we generally will prescribe a month at a time. And again, if you know you're going to need medication, it's approach the GP early. We have large numbers of prescriptions that which we have to process. And if there's anything which is complicated about it, you almost certainly will need to be seen uh, or, or at least have a telephone conversation or something. It has to be authorised. Um, and the pricing is, 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 is just something to take into account. If you're receiving compensation for any for a, uh, something, then prescription charges are free for things related to that condition. Can it be tricky going from a United Armed Forces to four nations NHS? And I suppose by the point that I really want here, why is it or what is it that's useful for people to know to help negotiate this? Yeah, so it's a very important question. So um, I work for NHS England. And obviously, I'm a general practitioner in England, but uh, health is devolved. So the services in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland are arranged by each individual country um, so that if somebody was moving from England to Scotland as a civilian, then there, there sometimes can be issues about transferring notes and things like this. But what is really important and enshrined right across the United Kingdom is that the service that all four nations um, are, are sign up to the Armed Forces Covenant, um, and there are special services services available for veterans in England, Wales, and Scotland. Um, it's complicated in Northern Ireland because of the history of uh, uh, Op Banner and the and the troubles there, uh, where you 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 can't prioritise the military above others. But essentially, there are these extra services, whether or not they're the Veterans Mental Health Service in Scotland, or, for example, the specialist services which are available in Wales or Scotland. So, um, again, uh, there are websites available which will provide significant information. 
Similarly, you know, uh, there are skilled up GPs, for example, who are there. And actually, one of our aspirations is that the accreditation program that we have in England for GP surgeries um, will move across into certainly Wales and Scotland. From a practical point of view, go to your GP, whatever nation you're in, and they will help you navigate that. Yeah, exactly. So it they, one of the things about us as general practitioners is that we will know what services are available. You know, we know what's available at local hospital, um, you know, just because we're referring people, you know, and I refer, you know, uh, my civilian patients for treatment for PTSD and depression and anxiety and alcohol in exactly the same way. Where it is different is that there are these more specialised and sometimes faster referral pathways, which my civilian patients don't have access to. Thank you. And now, Paul, my final question to you. You gave some great advice earlier about um, an individual reaching out if they need help. Any other advice that you want to give? Yeah, I mean, just simply put, Alice, um, plan early. You know, nobody's going to get a week's notice before they're discharged unless you've done something extremely naughty. Um, So whether you're, you know, you're signed off or you've been medically discharged or you've been made redundant, you know, the, all the points that Kate made earlier, you know, you're going to have time. Um, and you may think that's a lot of time. I can assure you that 12 months or eight months or however long you get will fly by. So, you know, that's the time where it's time to be selfish. It's time to put you and your family first, which is alien to what you're taught in the military, which is it's a very selfless job. You know, you're, you, you know, the team comes first. You always work as a team. But that's the point where, you know, actually you need to start looking at where are you going to resettle? Where are you going to live? Where are you going to register? You know, we keep harping on about it, but register for your GP, register for your dentist, but also where are you going to work? You know, utilise, there is a, a plethora of um, resources out there. There are companies now who have bespoke military intern programmes, military apprenticeships, military degrees. There's, you know, you look at companies like Amazon, Deloitte, Barclays, who have got specific military pathways to employment utilise that, there's charities that, that exist specifically for addiction, as Kate mentioned, but also specifically for employability, for enterprise. You know, there's grants that veterans can get if they want to start their own business, if they've got a great idea. So start planning early. Um, I cannot reiterate the amount of times, this is when I was serving, when so this is nothing to do with medically discharge, the amount of guys who'd be like a month before they were due to leave and go, I don't really know, what I'm, I'll just get a job somewhere. And you think, it's, it's, it's not that easy. <laughs> I mean, it's genuinely not, it's nothing to be scared of, you know, going out and starting a new career or starting a new life, but at least give yourself the best possible chance for success. And that has to be about preparation. Plan early, give yourself the best chance of success. So thank you to my guests, Kate, Jonathan and Paul. In episode three, we'll be looking at all things GP, how to choose one that is right for you, what you need to tell them and what their role can be. As usual, we will be speaking to a mix of experts, service users and those responsible for influencing change. We hope you will join us. Goodbye.